I'm your host, Seth Day. I use he and they pronouns, and you're listening to Rad Child Podcast. All right. So uh, for this week's episode, we're talking about the topic of illness, um, specifically sort of thinking about chronic illnesses and um, terminal illnesses, things like that, things that maybe aren't going away. Um, so, uh, I guess we'll start by introducing, uh, I'll invite my guests to introduce themselves. So we're going to just start by saying our name, our pronouns, uh, where we're from and your connection with kids. So my name is Moira Stevenson. I go by she, her pronouns. Uh, my professional life, I wear several hats. So I'm a pediatric psychologist in Montreal at the lethbridge Leighton Mackay Rehabilitation Center. I'm also a clinical child psychologist with a very small private practice. And I also run parenting groups and support for parents under the title Parenting with Confidence. So that's, those are the hats. <laughs> that's a lot of hats. <laughs> the hats, Yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh, thank you so much. Do you want us to talk about our experience with um, chronic illness as well? Yeah, I mean, we can, that was sort of going to be my next question, but we can throw that, I don't like, I, I didn't want to overwhelm you with too many things at once, but yeah, we can throw that in here, sure. Shall I go ahead with that one? Oh, okay. Sure. Yeah, go for it. So I grew up around chronic illness. I had a sibling with very severe asthma growing up who eventually succumbed to complications of the disease and died at the age of 18. Gosh, I'm sorry to hear that. Oh, that's okay. That's okay. Um, And then I did my doctoral research on services for bereaved parents offered here in Montreal. And then um, after that, I interned at St. Justin Hospital, again in Montreal, in the immunology and rheumatology. And then I switched to the uh, lethbridge Leighton Mackay, where I've been mostly working with kids with disabilities, um, specifically right now with visual impairment and hearing impairment. So Mm -hmm. some of those kids have chronic illness and some of them do not. So I have more of a mixed bag right now. Awesome. Thank you so much. Heather, do you want to go ahead? So my name is Heather Osterman Davis, and I'm a writer and a mother of two living in New York City. My pronouns are she, her. My relationship to chronic illness is after I had my two children, when my oldest was just going into pre-K, my daughter was younger than that, I just suddenly started feeling sick and unwell and chased a diagnosis for a while until I was diagnosed with MECFS or myalgic encephalomyelitis, more commonly known as chronic fatigue. And suddenly I turned from a relatively healthy person um, into a parent living with chronic illness. Thank you so much for sharing. All right. Uh, so I'm, I guess I'm going to say I'm Dr. Barbocoté, right? Um, Jean Barbocoté. Um, I'm in Montreal and my pronouns are she and her. And my relationship to kids is that I work with them um, as a doctor on a regular basis. 
So, yeah, obviously I'm a doctor, so I see illness pretty much every day, all day. Uh, but I also uh, happen to have uh, several chronic illnesses and chronic pain. So I have a kind of a double point of view on illness. What, um, what kind of medicine do you do? So I'm a resident in family, do- uh, in family medicine. Um, I see all sorts of uh, people from age uh, minus nine months to uh, age uh, 109, really. Um, (laughs) I've seen them. And uh, all sorts of illnesses, uh, whether they are the common cold or terminal cancer, um, in the clinic, in the hospital, in the palliative care setting, um, in the delivery room, pretty much everywhere. That's awesome. You get around, huh? Oh, yeah, I do. <laughs> um, so we talk a lot uh, in this podcast about, uh, you know, topics that might we might be sort of caught off guard by our kids asking questions about or things like that. And so I'm curious, it could be related to illness, it could not be related to illness. Um, if there's ever a time that a child asks you a question that you were not prepared to answer. Whenever a child has asked us a question that we were not prepared to answer... That's like every question a child asks me. <laughs> I know. That's usually the answer. The answer is usually all the time, every day. <laughs> uh, I think some of the questions that I find interesting to tackle are questions around death and mm. these more like existential questions. Yeah. I find those sometimes put me in a spot of like, okay how do I make sure that the information I'm sharing right now or what I'm explaining right now is going to be clear to the Mm -hmm. child and like taking into consideration where they're at in terms of their own development, you know? And yeah, I think those are the ones that I grapple with sometimes. Yeah, it can definitely be tricky. It's it's funny. It's making me think about it. I totally forgot about this, but I used to babysit for these little girls who lived next door to me when I was growing up. And my father passed away when I was like 14. Mm-hmm. And we were at dinner with them one night and they asked like, oh, where's your dad? And like, I kind of looked at my mom like, you know, I didn't know what to tell them. And we were just like, oh, he's away on vacation. Or like we made up some BS <laughs> kind of excuse. That was not true at all. And because, you know, we didn't want to open up a discussion with them that their parents weren't comfortable. You know, it was like, we didn't know what to say. Yeah. And, um, and so the next time babies have for them, they were like, they were very young. I think younger than six. And, um, the last time, the next time I babysat with them, one of them sat me down and they were like, you know, our parents told us that your dad died. And like, that's okay. And like, they were like comforting me and I was like, Aww. oh, this is very, you know, and it was like, they were like, we know he's not on vacation. I was like, oh, okay. not on vacation. Now they're terrified to go anywhere. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh. So, you know, I thought a lot about that one and it has not happened yet because every time a kid oh. did ask me, uh, a, dif- a question that would seem difficult, like, am I going to die? Uh, the answer's always been no so far um, <laughs> because they have a minor illness and they're just really anxious. But, uh, you know, it's not happened to me, but I've had uh, some mentors, um, one especially that was very impressed with uh, is a palliative care doctor mm-hmm. in, in pediatrics. And uh, a story he told really stuck with me and I hope I never have to deal with that, but he does on a regular basis is uh, a kid asking him uh, like a 12 year old kid saying, I don't know how to die. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, that that is something that really stuck with me. And I hope I don't have to go there in my career, but you never know what might happen. I think I was, for me, I can think of two questions. And one was we were, I think this was also because of location, because we were driving in a Lyft, which is just a rideshare service in New York City. And we drove by the veterinarian where we had taken my cat when he uh, passed away. And my son said, well, that's where we were when Samson died, right? And I said, yes. And they said, well, what happened to his body? (laughs) And it was just, you know, I'm in this taxi, like driving up 8th Avenue. And I was like, oh, now I have to talk about cremation. And we hadn't kept his ashes. And, you know, he's seven at this point. I think my daughter is five. And how do I start talking about this notion of a body being burnt, which is a very kind of visceral image, at least in our experience, you know, for some, some communities, it may be more normal and talked about. So I kind of took a breath. The driver turned around to look at me because he knows where this is going. And he's like, how is she going to handle this one? And I just, kind of did you know I just talked about it and I thought well my thing is I don't ever want to lie to them so I took a moment and I said well how much do you want to know because I feel like I could answer this but I know both of you have some anxiety around these issues so it might be uncomfortable do you want to know and they both took a second and they both said yes and so then we just talked about it and I explained what cremation was and how in our culture and parts of our culture for some people that seemed really scary, but how some people believed it was a way to, you know, liberate your spirit and, and kind of from what I knew from different things. And we kind of just left it at that and they asked some questions, but it's kind of amazing what they can take in if you let them, but things I do kind of like that preface of like, how much, how much are you ready for right now? And they might not know, but I think kids do often know what they can handle more than we can. And the assumptions we make about what they can handle aren't always right. It might have to do with our own baggage more than theirs. Exactly. Like projecting our own fears about this, this conversation onto them. I love what you're doing about um, asking them, like putting that forth as a question instead of an explanation, you know, and I think that's so important with kids to see like, where are they coming from when they ask you that question, when they ask these kind of more existential or more abstract questions to kind of almost bounce it back to them to get an idea of where they're at. Yeah. yeah, that's something that we talk a lot about on here is like, you know, answering a question with a question of like, mm-hmm. whether it's, you know, what do you already know about that? Or what do you want to know about that? Mm-hmm. Or just elaborating on what the question actually is. Um, but I think that's really important. And also kids can handle a lot more than we think they mm-hmm. can. I think is something mm-hmm. that we talk about a lot too, because I think sometimes we treat children like they're this other thing. And I'm like, no, like they're people like they you know, they have the capacity to, to understand a lot. And um, I think they surprise us a lot with their, even like young kids, like my kids now um, that I nanny are uh, 20 months and they, they don't say any words yet. Um, but I've taught them sign language and they're like 
wildly like their ability to communicate is like wild yeah like they've they learned like i just taught them you know individual signs like more and please and thank you and you know water food whatever things like that and they were able like without me teaching them at all they're able to just like put two signs together and be like more please or like more baby shark or more (laughs) thinking baby shark (sighs) finish finish baby shark (laughs) yeah right all done baby shark (laughs) but you know they were able to to do those things and even at a young age i was like wow like you really like there's a lot going on in there you know um that i think sometimes we take take for granted or we don't we don't think that they can understand as much as they can they can under they can understand and i think what's interesting too is when we use like colloquialisms that we use around death and illness that are so common in our society like things like saying mm. they passed away you know like the we lost children, them like yeah, they're, they're, really gonna find listening. Them again. they're they're paying attention to the actual words you're using and i find it so educational for me when i'm talking to kids cuz it makes me like cut through the bull loney and get to the <laughs> clear point of what i'm trying to say you know just like like with my three-year-old, just it, finding ways to explain things that are just like really super clear, you know, like when she yeah. asked me what something is and just being like, oh, that's just does this, you know? And, and I think when we're, when we're talking about illness and death, like we, we have this death anxiety in our culture that we're bringing to the table. And so we're avoiding being clear, which is just super confusing for our yeah. kids when we yeah, can just right. say the word death like they'll be all right you know like we can use clear language with children they are real humans you know yeah for sure and there's a really good book called death is stupid by anastasia higginbotham um and it uh it's like a kid's like a picture book and there's a lot there's a couple of pages like that where like there's like oh we lost her and the kid's like she's not lost like she's not coming back or like people being like oh she's she's just sleeping like she's okay when is she gonna wake up like you know it's those kind of um talks about that a lot of like we should just be using clear language and we don't need to be using all this kind of fluffy um fluffy fake you know it's words that make us feel better right it's yes. not it's not helpful to the child necessarily no um, but then of course it's hard because with death it's it is an unknowable right you know you can come into yeah. it with your own beliefs but the concrete answer is you don't know you know what so you it's actually, like, yeah for me it's very easy to talk about concrete things with my children but I know for the first time you know when my son had lost a pet and had you know some anxiety about death already and there was this whole thing with the goldfish and where did the goldfish go and this (laughs) kind of long disastrous process where we were trying to send a message to the goldfish and it you know (laughs) and it didn't turn out well for its own 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 situations, which is a longer story. But, you know, my son was asking me these really hard questions, like, where do you go? You know, why do people have to die? You know, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to invent something that makes it so, you know, nobody dies. And it's kind of hard to walk him through that anxiety when I've had that own anxiety since I was a kid. You know, my first memory is having a panic attack about dying. And, like, how do I then help him through this, but yeah. not having concrete answers? You know, I wish I came from a place where I was like, oh, there's heaven. We know there's some place where you go. But the fact of the matter is we don't, right? I can say some people believe this, some people believe yeah. that. 
And, you know, and we don't know. You know and then we talk about <laughs> the scientific problems. If we actually did create something, how we would live forever. <laughs> we'd run out of resources and explain real estate in New York City. But... <laughs> But you're having an open discussion, right? And I think that's what's so important about those conversations. Like when a child is feeling anxious to be open to like, let's explore this together. Let's explore not necessarily concrete answers, but let's explore reflecting on it, right? Because that's what you're doing. You're reflecting on spirituality in that moment with them. And also it's so powerful to say like, I don't know. Like we don't know. Um, And I think even we talk about that a lot like with, answering questions like if you know if a child asks a question and like being able to say like I don't know the answer to that question or like I need a minute to think about that (laughs) like um you know and just taking time to think about but I think it's really powerful to be able to say like I don't know the answer to that like and you know we'll never I mean whether it's a question some questions right you might not know the answer and we can like look it up that's not one of those um (laughs) And then it's hard. It's also easier when it's abstract. For But for me, when I first got sick and I didn't know what was wrong with me and mm. I would have days where I felt like I was dying, you know, it's like, and I was chasing down diagnosis after diagnosis. And there was at one point where my kids said, but you're not going to die, right? And I didn't know what to say because I didn't know, you know, now, now I'm pretty sure that, you know, at some point I'll die and it's not going to be from whatever's going on with my body right Mm. now. But when I didn't know, I just wanted to reassure them, but I didn't want to say, no, of course not. Because then if I did, I feel like I would have left with them with this tragic lie. So I kind of just had to take a pause and say, Everything that I'm finding suggests that no, like I might have parts of this for the rest of my life, which I hope you know is going to be a long time, but I don't know. You know, the truth is I don't know. And I felt uh, part of that was I didn't want to give them that reassurance. Yeah. But I was just with this hole that I, the worst thing I could do is to say, no, I'm not going to leave you. And then two days later, something happened where I was gone and to leave them with that. But it was this navigating, what do you do when you really don't know? And it was like, I was like, oh, I'm applying this abstract, but this is my life. I don't know what's wrong with me. Um, And I was scared. You know, I didn't need to give them that fear because they were so little, but I didn't want to give them a fake reassurance either. Yeah, for sure. And so how did the conversation go, Heather? Like, what did you end up saying in response? Um, I think I kind of just said, you know, from everything that the doctors are telling me that, no, like, I'm not going to die, you know, and I don't know what's happening to my body, but I'm doing everything I can in my power to get better for me and for you. You know, I want to be healthy, but... You know, I wish I was the mother that I was before, but I don't know. And if I know something more, I'll tell you. But right now, this is what I believe. This is what the doctors believe. This is what, you know, the thoughts on it are. But that's all that I have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that, but that, and that has that concrete nature to it in a sense, right? Even though it's abstract, like the way you're talking about it still is very much true to the moment, right? 
that yeah. you're living in. And I feel like that's all we can do, right? Yeah. yeah. Or there was this other moment, I think that a story where my son had lost his tooth mm-hmm. and he was putting it under the pillow and he said, um, I think I'm going to ask for the tooth fairy to make you better because I don't need a present or money. Do you think the tooth fairy can do that? And I actually ended up writing something about it because I was like, oh, what do you say in that moment? You know, do you let the kid believe that they might have this power of magic, you know, or do you say tooth fairies can't do that? You know, or do you say there's two specializes in teeth only? (laughs) (laughs) Just tooth magic. Just tooth magic. You know, like we're already letting them believe in the tooth fairy, so why not? Yeah. You know, and I came to this point where I was like, when it's 11, 11 on a clock, I wish to get better sometimes, you know? So, like, if I can make a wish on, you know, a time, just because they're all the same number, why not let my kids wish on, you know, the tooth fairy, so... Can I share that I do the same thing, but I do it for other people at 11, 11? 11, 11. I love that. I sometimes do it for other people too, but <laughs> my dad had cancer every day. And I was like, what did I say? My mantra was like, cancer free and feeling better. And he's okay, actually. <laughs> it works. Aww. No, I'm kidding. Okay. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> the new religion oh based on the power of 1111. <laughs> well, you know, one, there was this one woman, I think her name was Harriet Cabelli, who I had interviewed for this article. And she said, well, um, wishes are a child's way of praying, right? Mm-hmm. And it's or the equivalent. And of course, it's not guaranteed, you know, but maybe prayer works, maybe it doesn't, hey, maybe neither are prayers. But yeah, but it's doing something for them in the moment. Yeah. And kind of that's what's important. And I thought, I'm well, you know, it, it is like yeah. there's no harm in hoping as long as we're not giving a guarantee, you know? Yeah. And I think that's true for parents too. Like I can't agree with you more. I know I'm often confronted at my work with interveners who have difficulty when parents saying that they're praying for a cure, right? For an illness that we know has no, on paper, no scientific cure. And I know sometimes other professionals will feel really uncomfortable with that because it's like, well, there is no cure. Like, they're wrong, right? And and I, one of the things that I try to explain is that you can understand the reality of the situation and still have hope, right? Yeah. Because hope is it's different. It's it's part of spirituality. It's not. It's it's, it's, a, it's a different way of thinking, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that, you know. Um, yeah. You can have the two can coexist, the understanding of the reality and the hope of something more grandiose or spiritual. Those two things can exist together for children and for adults. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I love that. Um, okay, so my I'm, I'm curious about we, this episode is sort of like a little bit of two, two parts, um, but I'm curious how we could explain to a, a child that they have a chronic illness versus mm-hmm. explaining that someone in their life has a chronic illness. So if I mean, you don't have to tackle both of those if they're not relevant to you. Um, but yeah, I'm curious how, so like, and Heather, if you have a personal account of how you've explained, you can totally go ahead with that or I don't know. I think I'm going to be saying that a lot today, but uh, <laughs> with children, uh, my Two rules are consistency 
and honesty. Mm-hmm. So um, like obviously with, um, with health, it's very, very difficult to be consistent because human health is everything but. Um, so you want to be and the parents want to be the constant. Uh, mm-hmm. You want to be saying as much as possible the same thing uh, as a team. And you want to be giving the right information as much as possible every time. Um, obviously, you have to start with a good base, which can be really annoying if the parents don't want to cooperate in that. Uh, because if you start off with a lie, then you're pretty much uh, <laughs> you're done at that point. Um, and honesty. Obviously, you don't want to give uh, gnarly details to a child. Mm-hmm. You don't need to do that. But um, as much as possible, if the parents agree, I always tell the truth to children. I don't yeah. lie to them. I don't. I don't sugarcoat it. Um, I try to explain it in terms that they can understand, depending on their level of maturity. Uh, their age and their culture especially can be extremely mm-hmm. important because um, when it comes to kid, if you lie to them or if you omit uh, crucial information, uh, as you know, they have a wild imaginations and they will... <laughs> yeah, they'll fill in the blanks in worse ways <laughs> than you could ever have. <laughs> yes, they will imagine things as way worse than they are. Yeah. Uh, even if you think that what you're going to tell them is the worst thing. Um, so you really have to just be consistent and honest with them. I love that. I think that's that's so important. And I also love the bit about sort of being on the same page as parents. I, um, so, so important. I feel that very much as a nanny. Um, yeah. Because there are certain times where, you know, a kid will ask me a question and I know how I want to answer, mm-hmm. but I don't know if that's the same answer the parents would give. And we have to have conversations about things yeah. like that. Or, or even, for example, like I am a big supporter of using the anatomical names for body yes. parts. And I would <laughs> talk to parents about that because I you know because one of my kids just started you know like I don't want one of my kids to just be going like this is my vagina and the parents you know be mad at me for teaching them the word vagina yes. vulva, or anything like that um so I always sort of have a conversation with them beforehand like yes. what words do you use we should all be on the same page about those words um these are the words I suggest but of course like it's ultimately your decision but you know things like that I think it's so important to uh yeah But it was just so funny because I had one little kid who I, you know, I feel um, it's very important, especially like when I'm changing diapers and things, I'll always sort of talk through what I'm doing Uh uh, and sort of narrate it. And so... I would always say, you know, we want to have a clean vulva. And so one of my little kids would then, every time she got her diaper changed, would go, clean vulva! (laughs) (laughs) That is hilarious. Yeah. Well, you know, as a doctor, uh, most of the time for me, it is non-negotiable that we (laughs) use anatomical terms. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) You know, obviously, if the, the kid doesn't know the words it's really hard to yeah. describe what's happening to them so sure. it's always difficult if the pa- the parents never taught them these words but as much as possible i try to use the correct terms so that we can have an open discussion where we you know go to the right diagnosis 
as quick as possible. Yeah, sure. I mean, it just it just makes sense to me. Like it also destigmatizes. Absolutely. Those, you know, um, when we're talking about those particular body parts, it destigmatizes them because it's like you know, there is no other body part that for the first however many years of your life, like we don't call a nose something else. Yes. And then when you're when you're twelve, we call it a nose. Like. <laughs> Call it what it is. I can say when I'm working with kids that that are diagnosed with an illness or a disability or limitation, I think one thing to think about is where again where they're at, right, in terms of their understanding and their development. Because we know that developmentally, children's ability to understand more abstract com- uh, concepts it develops, you know, as they're, as they're growing. So a young child is just not going to have that same kind of understanding that an older Mm. child will. But then for, it's different if you're an outsider rather than the parent themselves, because there's also the family culture and what the parents have told their child and what they're comfortable Mm -hmm. communicating to their child. And so it can sometimes be quite, quite difficult to reign as a professional to be in. I'm a I'm a big fan of using visual aids whenever I can, mm-hmm. um, and other ways to kind of make things clear and concrete as much as you know as much as can be done. And materials like that exist for many many different disabilities and illnesses, so they are available. But again, it's that going back and asking the child, right, what they understand about what's going on, right? Like, yeah. like, like, why, why do you think that sometimes it's difficult for you to see? You know, if I'm working with a child with a visual impairment, or what do you think is giving you a tummy ache if it's more of a chronic illness? And kind of like really getting an idea of their understanding and then going Mm. along with them in that journey of understanding rather than trying to pull them over to understanding it from your point of view, you know? Yeah. I think a lot of working with kids is meeting them where they're at. So much. For sure. Yeah. 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 So I know that that, that's, that's kind of how I tackle it when I'm working with children. Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't have, you know, as much experience. I definitely don't have any with trying to explain to a child they have a terminal illness. But in terms of chronic illness, both of my children do have a chronic illness. Luckily, that isn't really life-threatening or life-altering. And I probably don't want to get into too many specifics about just for kind of their uh, personal privacy. But I think when they understand parts of it that help them process their differences or to gain tools that they need to help cope with it is, can be really powerful. Or even in this one, I don't mind sharing because this I've already violated my child's privacy by writing about, but you know, my son <laughs> has ADHD, which I wouldn't okay. consider a chronic illness, but a chronic condition. Mm-hmm. And he takes medication that helps monitor it. And it wears off in the afternoon. And at first, it didn't occur to me to tell him, hey, your medication wears off in the afternoon, so you're going to have these feelings and these experiences, and then we can have tools to deal with it. But once I told him, it's like things made so much sense to him. He was like, oh, and he likes talking about it. So he'll even tell the (laughs) grownups, like, oh, you know, this is kind of when my medication wears off, so I have a harder time. You know, I love so that. Says, 
but like then it's kind of like you know he was going through this thing at after school where suddenly it was harder for him to articulate his thoughts or emotions and when he knows what's going on it gives him that power you know and sometimes then he is yeah. an excuse right you know it's like oh, <laughs> this is just my meds you know i don't have to care but it's kind of like i think it's amazing to say, hey, this is what you have. And at first I was worried about giving him that label so he would think something. But he loves to talk about, oh, my brain works differently. Um, my body experiences things differently. And I don't know, it was amazing to kind of watch him take that in and instead of disempowering him, to make him feel more empowered. Well, I think I, as an adult with ADHD, who was, you know, I was once a child with ADHD. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Um, uh, I I think that that's really amazing because I had, my parents did a lot of the, like, you can do whatever anybody else can do. And um, that was like, that really, I think was, you know, intent, well-intentioned, but ended up being kind of harmful to me because I was holding myself to the standards of a neurotypical person. Right. Um, and so I think it's it's nice to be able to have open conversations and be like, you know, about about that kind of stuff with kids. And I think sometimes we think we're sort of protecting them by not telling them those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, but it can be really, like you were saying, it can be really empowering um, to know what's going on in your own body. <laughs> right, and it doesn't make it not hard, but it's like my daughter yes. has something where she gets lower muscle tone. So her development mm-hmm. physically has been slower. So for her to know that that's not just, you know, it's not her fault that she can't run as much or do things as physically. It doesn't mean there's no self-criticism or shame or sadness around it, but it's, you know, it's like the acceptance of like, this is our bodies. These are the bodies that we are given with their powers and their challenges. Exactly. Yeah. Some things yeah. are easy and some things are difficult. I've been incorporating that a lot more into the therapy I'm doing with kids in my private practice of like this exploration, because I think that I don't want to talk too much about like parenting childhood history, but there's that, like you were saying, Seth, and like, you can do anything. And then you get to adulthood and you're like, no, I can't. And <laughs> I'm, I'm finding it really fun right now to explore with kids. Like here, what are you good at? And what is more difficult for you? And mm. even supporting parents with like, okay, so this is difficult for your kid, but you want them to do it. So how do you stay firm on like, you know what, I think you should do this, but then support them in being able to do that. Like saying, you know what, this is difficult for you. What can we do to help you or to support you so that it is a bit easier for you or that you feel more capable in doing it, you know? Yeah. And, I, and I, it's easy for me because uh, – I, I'm uh, slightly dysgraphic, which means I don't write very well. So I always have mm. evidence of what I'm not good at with my notes, which are on my lap. So I'm like, here you go. I said this. <laughs> yeah. I'm it. Oh my gosh. But yeah. It's really interesting to see kids kind of cruise that, that area of understanding of themselves. It's like, okay, this is tough, but that's all right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's nice to be able to focus on, you know, the good things and the challenges as opposed to just focusing on one or the other. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's like, and everybody ends relating to them and saying like, yeah, like I have, you know, I'm good at this thing and maybe I'm not as good at that. Like everybody has things that they're good at and not good at, you know, we all have strengths and weaknesses. Yes, for sure. (laughs) Um, so I'm, I'm curious also about, 
Uh, we talked uh, mainly about um, ex- explaining, you know, talking to children uh, with, you know, chronic illnesses. Uh, how would you, I'm curious how you would go about, um, like, as an adult with a chronic illness, talking about that or if someone else in their life as opposed to the kid themselves had a chronic illness explaining that to oh, the kid. Um, I think in the beginning it was really hard because my son would say a lot of things like, I miss the way we, I just want you to be able to do this again. And I think the hardest part for me was to let him express that without bringing mm-hmm. my own anger and sadness into it. Because when he was saying I miss you being able to run around all day for me. I heard you're not good enough. Like you're the way you're mothering now isn't enough for me. And he was expressing sadness at a change, you know, and I think it took Mm -hmm. a while for me to hear that without having such an emotional reaction to it and knowing that he needed to express that and that, it was a loss for him and that was okay, you know, cause that was what he knew from birth through five or whatever that I was, you know, at home with them. I was very active. We all ran around, you know, I was a person who went to the gym every day, who ran to the parks, who, you know, baked things at home and, you know, and, but, and then second, suddenly I was a person who was in bed a lot and on weekends yeah. and my spouse was taking them out And it was okay. And it was okay to be like, okay, it's different. It's different. And it's okay that you're sad about that too. Um, Will you ever be able to do this again? I don't know. I hope so. Um, There's, there's a really great children's book that was kickstarted called why does mommy hurt? I don't know if you're familiar with it. Yeah. Um, But there's a page in that, that, talks about that that's that talks about like you know sometimes it's from the kid's perspective and it's like you know sometimes you know I get frustrated you know I get frustrated or I get sad that mommy can't do this or that and mommy you know tells me like she's frustrated and sad too um and uh I just I just really like that you know just the conversation of like yeah like I wish that I could do those things too and like it's frustrating for both of us um but being able to express um just express that you're upset about it. And on the, you know, on the grownups part, trying to, and it's very hard not to personalize sometimes when kids say things, but trying to parse apart what they're actually saying, you know, as opposed to what we're hearing. Yeah. And the Which triggering, I think is in, yeah. in general hard. Yeah. And it triggers <laughs> like that. What I'm hearing too, is like that triggering of that sense of guilt of like, uh, you know, like yeah. I wish, I wish, I wish, but I can't, you know? But for me, it also, there was an active in terms of like a tip that was helpful for me was that in the beginning of my illness, I feel like we talked a lot about what mommy can't do or give mommy space because she needs to rest. Mommy can't go with us because she's tired and at some point, like, I just turned to, you know, my husband and I was like, can we talk about what I can do too, <laughs> you know, and finding <laughs> things that we could do. But it wasn't, it was the language we were using, you know, yeah. and then mm. that's what they were doing, you know. So it was a lot of, we can't, but like, oh, and then we found things that were special, you know, whether it was finding special shows my son and I could watch together or spending, you know, time in bed playing games, and shifted the language of, hey, let's talk about all the things that mommy can do. Yeah. 
And that was, I I think, powerful for all of us because it's like even just hearing, you know, my husband who's trying to defend me are like, you know, give your mother space because she can't do that because she's tired. And it was like instead of feeling supported, I felt, again, you know, my baggage, but I felt that kind of not good enough attack. And I was like, we need to reframe the language, even though this is all coming from a place of support and love. It's how we talk about it. Right. Yeah. It becomes the internal language. Yeah, for sure. I love that. I think in, in general, you know, the language is just so important and thinking about how, how we use our language, especially around kids too. Right. Um, because they're little sponges and they Mm -hmm. absorb everything. You know, it's funny. We're at the age the, the kids that I nanny are at the age now where they're just like mimicking everything. And I'm like, well, we got to be really careful about everything we say now because a lot of the parents that I work with, you know, will be like, when do we have to stop cursing? When do we have to stop, you know, talking about things? I'm like, now, it's now when they start mimicking everything. It's now. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, so my next question is just how do we explain? I think a lot of times kids their experience with illness, you know, depending on the kid, obviously. Um, but for, you know, an able-bodied kid who does not have a chronic illness, um, their experience with illness is usually maybe having a cold and getting better. So how do we explain that a chronic illness or a terminal illness is something that maybe doesn't, you know, that's not going to get better or might fluctuate? Um, and also like, how do we maybe talk about illnesses with, uh, with remission where maybe it's going to get better, but then it could get worse again, things like that. I, I like the way you just said it, Seth. Like, that's kind of how I would go, exactly like that. Like, you know, sometimes we have illnesses that get better, you know, like a cold. Remember the cold you had last week, using an example. And then some illnesses people don't get better from, so they we have to do other things to help them be able to do what they want to do in life, Right. Yeah, that's that's our common rhetoric in rehab, because that's essentially all we do there. Right. So aside from the consistency and the honesty, I think you want to uh, manage their expectations. Mm. Um, You want to explain in the words that you can understand what they can expect from the illness, um, how it's going to evolve in the next few years. And you don't need to get into decades, obviously, (laughs) unless they're a teen, uh, then you can get into more of decades, but even they don't really care that much. Um, And, you know, give as much information as the child wants. You don't want to push it onto them. Um, If they're not receptive, then there's no point. You can try again at another time. So manage their expectations about complications, about what they can hope for in life without, you know, shutting them down. You want to, you want to support them in their projects, but you want to say, you know, you might have difficulty with this or that, and we can do this, this and that to help you out. Your parents can support you in this way. I'm always here to support you. And, uh, you know, present to them uh, their options in terms of treatment, because even if the kid's not 14, they do have a say in Mm. their treatment. It's so, so important to give them a sense of control over their life and their illness. Otherwise, I think you have a bigger risk of them um, kind of rebelling 
yeah. against the treatment, against the illness, especially in adolescence. Yeah. Uh, it's very, very common for adolescents having trouble taking their meds, mm-hmm. wanting to explore. You have to expect that from them. So, yeah, you just want to kind of paint the portrait for them and help them complete it in a way, you know, kind of present a map of what they can expect and then guide them through that. Yeah, I think overall it's just about like I'm all about explaining things to children and like you're saying being honest with children I mm-hmm. you know I just think it's so important I think that sometimes we we treat them like they're this other thing um and they're <laughs> not like people <laughs> you know? yes I don't know why people forget that children are simply humans at a different yeah, developmental stage so than adults <laughs> Um, you know, uh, in pediatrics, we always say children are not small adults, yeah. and that's true, but they are small humans. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's just that it's always going to be there unless they develop a cure, which we know, you know, does happen for some things. And it just means you live differently. And I think I, I do want to give a little clarification on some of the terminology, actually, when it comes to these types of conditions in children. Um, we use terminal illness more with adults. When we're talking about children, uh, we tend to use terminology life-threatening and life-limiting illnesses, um, just so you know, um, because it's a bit more clear also to what we're talking about with children. Mm. <clears throat> um, but the, the chronicity of the illness, I think it's the, it's like you were saying when you first posed the question, Seth, of like some things get better and some things don't. So how do we live and how do we continue to have the life we want right now? I like sometimes to go back to that present moment. Like how do we get mm. that life we want right now and how do we like feel as good as we can right now, right? Um, and what can yeah, we do to support that? that. Um, and it's interesting, just to go back about life-limiting and life-threatening illnesses, um, I think sometimes, especially older children, have more of an understanding of their mortality than we might realize. And um, I'll share a little mm. story with that. I was, I was 11 when my brother died. And later when I was about, I guess I was about 16, I had found a box of his poetry. And his death being that it was, he had severe asthma. So there's no, it's, he approached death on multiple occasions, but it was considered manageable. And, and I always thought that that's how it was and that the death was more of a sudden thing. And then I found this poetry and I found one of his poems where he talks about his own mortality in this poem and he talks about knowing that he might not live to be an adult and it was really interesting to to read that after he had died actually um and it was really eye-opening to me at a young age that he he understood his mortality more than i think my parents realized and definitely more than i did you know what's going on, even if people aren't telling you. Yeah, yeah for sure. Well, I, I do think that kids understand very young, you know, and it's, I used to mm. joke that, I mean, I really, you know, I mentioned this earlier, but I really did have an anxiety about 
death for as long as I could remember. You know, it's even in early elementary school, I used to wake up at night kind of paralyzed by this fear of my mortality and then, you know, go into my parents' room and tell them I had nightmares about snakes because they <laughs> considered that more concrete than my <laughs> angst about dying. <laughs> but my children both developed this at a very young age too. And I was like, is it genetic? Like, is this my fault? <laughs> that my <laughs> children are like, you know, like my daughter, even now she'll just be like, don't, you can't use the D word in the house. You know, she calls it the D word. <laughs> okay. I'm like, even if I say something where I'm explaining something kind of unrelated to human mortality, she's like, you can't say the D word. And I was like, well, like, you know, I have to say it sometimes, you know, cause it's conversation. <laughs> like I can avoid talking about the talk of it. So it is kind of, interesting how just at very young ages this is something kids want either to talk about or not talk about but it's mm. on their minds you know and yeah. so I think then very nature like if a parent is sick for some of them they might you know go through this thing it's like oh does this mean like are you going to leave me are you going to leave me and I think it is harder when you don't have kind of when you have life threatening or life un unknowing things that you're dealing with. Yeah. I did a I did a great training um when I was doing my PhD with uh, Don Cruchet who's a she's retired now, but she's a child therapist who worked a lot with bereaved children here in uh, mm. Montreal. And she said something I found so useful in my career of the same things three times when they're talking about death to kind of alleviate some of that anxiety. And it was, I'm going to try not to get it wrong here, but people die when they're either very, very, very old or very, very, very sick or very, I think it was very, very, very hurt. I always mix up the last one, but the emphasis of being saying it three times to make it clear that we're not talking about someone who's a little old, a little sick, a little hurt, that it's really when you're very, very, very and that's when people sometimes die. But like to really be emphasizing the fact that it's not just every little thing that can cause you to die, you know? Mm. And mm. I, I found that really, really, really useful. <laughs> very, very, very useful. Very, very, very useful. <laughs> no, because I think, I think I love that because I think kids do understand extremes, you know? Yes. And, it's, and it's, so it's not just... Like I fell down and then, you know, I died, you know? So it's like that something severe needs to happen. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you for that. And, and like when children avoid something like that, I like that you're not, you're still mentioning it sometimes, you know, like even though your kids don't want to hear the D word. Yeah. Still sprinkling in the D word, and they can see. Oh, I survived the D word. I'm okay. I can hear this word, and I'll be all right. Yeah, and I'll be okay. <laughs> the D word, mom. So D funny. word. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, so, sort of going going off of um, going off of what we we're just talking about. I'm curious a little bit about how uh, how we might explain that. You know someone might not quote unquote look sick or look like they're in pain, but might not be feeling well if they have a chronic illness. Right. So obviously you always want to check with uh, the actually, actually ill pe person uh, 
what kind of information they want their child to know. And even when they're not super open about it, I try to encourage them to open up some uh, because, like we said, uh, their imagination will fill in the gaps. Um, So you don't want to let them think that, you know, mom's going to die from a depression because you don't want to tell your kid that you have a depression. Um, At the same time, you don't have to give gnarly details. Um, so, you know, discuss with the ill person to see what information they want to give and then consistency, honesty, managing expectations and to, you know, get them to understand, uh, a chronic illness in somebody else. You can relate it to something that, uh, they know about, Mm. um, like, for example, you can tell a kid, you know, sometimes you're upset or you're sad or you're mad and you don't necessarily show it. Uh, you keep it inside and you still feel upset even though you don't show it. Mm. So your your parent or your sister or your brother feels kind of like that. But instead of being upset, they're in pain or they have whichever symptom they, you want to explain. Mm. Um, so even if they don't seem sick, they feel sick they are sick and these are the things that you can do to respect that and help them in your own way um so yeah i think that's pretty much it um children are very very um quick to grasp things like that uh even when they don't show it (laughs) uh, they understand a lot more than we give them credit for well, I think for me, I mean, because this is kind of my thing, I think to give them a concrete example, like imagine you have a bad cut down your leg and it makes you hurt. It makes you not be able to like, you know, walk as well, but you're not limping and you have shorts on. Everybody can see the cut on your leg and they know your leg might be hurting. But if you put down pants and you can't see it, So your cut is invisible. Does your leg still hurt? Mm -hmm. And like it does because it's still there. So for some people, it's what's not working is inside their body that might make them hurt. And it's not visible, but it doesn't mean it's not there. Um, And that's kind of what it is. And now it's like, you know, my kids are cute because they've become little advocates for me. Like they'll be somewhere (laughs) and they're like, oh, well, my mommy needs a chair because... You know, it's hard for, it's hard for her to stand up or, you know, like, oh, well, you know, my mommy needs the elevator because, you know, it's like, but it is, so they've seen me in those moments, but it is hard. And then sometimes I am fine, you know, it's like, or I feel great and I can stand and you can walk and that's hard to play with too. Cause you feel like you always have to be defending the, <laughs> I look really, I'm healthy, you know, I'm not, um, Yeah, I talked with a few other parents who have disabilities who um, are occasional wheelchair users, right? And Mm -hmm. so it's that because of like some people with, I'm going to say it wrong, Ehlers-Danlos or other connective Mm -hmm. tissue diseases or POTS, you know, where you're having a problem regulating blood pressure and stuff that you might need a wheelchair to get around sometimes and then are fine the other times. We joke that there's this kind of beleaguered fake walk you almost want to do to kind of show that like I'm not faking it when I need the chair or the disability seats or the wheelchair and like how do you visibly show to people that you're not well and then 
the kind of internal shame comes from even feeling like you need to do that. Right. It's like, yeah. Well, as, as, so I have, I have narcolepsy and um, I get, so I get very tired sometimes. And uh, so on public transportation, sometimes I will take a seat. And sometimes if that seat is the seat that is for people with mobility issues, I feel okay taking that seat. And I have been told to get out of that seat before for other people. I'm like, yeah. and so I literally started, I have a button on my jacket that says Invis- invisible illness club. And I have another button that says, offer me a seat. <laughs> so I can just be like, here you go. I will point to that. I see it so much when I'm working like with my kids that have a visual impairment that aren't mm-hmm. blind. Right. So like mm-hmm. there's a mm-hmm. large array of visual impairment that's not necessarily there's there's this huge range and so you'll hear like maybe example an educator at a daycare was like no no they see they see and like yeah but they don't see like you see you know and and like they're functioning and that's amazing and that's what we want but we can't assume just because they're not running into a wall that everything (laughs) is totally fine right and so yeah it's just it's just really interesting and and there's a certain like open-mindedness too of like yeah. of us as a society of like seeing people for who they are and not trying to like project like hey it's unfair I went to work last week with a cold why should why should he get the seat you know like yeah, yeah. well I think it's yeah. like with my kids we try to do you never know what somebody's story is yeah. until you yeah. ask and not mm-hmm. like you can always ask you know we even had kind of done that a lot with gender, like you don't, you can't know if somebody's a boy or a girl or, you know, something else unless you ask. And it's not always appropriate to ask, you know, but kids, like, I don't know, they just get it. They're like little sponges and they're so willing to kind of understand mm-hmm. people if you give them the tools, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's why I think it's so important to like, I'm, I love kids books. I love reading books to kids. And I think it's so important to you to just like make sure that our, that the media that our kids are consuming has all different kinds of people and is about, you know, all different kinds of things. And I always say like, just, you know, just because your kid doesn't have a chronic illness or disability doesn't mean you shouldn't be reading books about it. Yeah. Um, exactly. About kids with those things. And yeah. And I think, I think it's really easier to, for kids to understand and connect when they have examples. Um, Mm-hmm. And yeah, interesting. I just oh sorry, Seth. Oh, go ahead. No, that's okay. I'm just saying it's really interesting too if we look at like the media that children consume, like children's television, for example, and like just going back to like conversations about death and disability, like those things are portrayed in such a strange way sometimes on <laughs> programming that yes. it's like it's no wonder the kids are confused when they when they talk to you about these things. You know, it's like just really confusing sometimes for kids like to see these these shows and then like how does that boil back to the reality I just wish for a day when we could have children's programming that is more I don't know realistic to how life actually is I I also feel like we're at the point with I mean speaking about disability specifically where like disability and children's media equals someone in a wheelchair every time um there's always like one kid and I'm like I'm glad we're at the point that we at least have representation of children with disabilities like that's great but they can look like disabilities can can look so many different ways and like we were saying can look you know like being like every everybody else um 
visually speaking. And, and so I don't know, I think it's, it's interesting. I feel like it makes me think of that. I feel like it was in the nineties when we really started to have like, like on every billboard, it would be like one black person and yeah. one Hispanic person <laughs> yeah. and one white person and one person in a wheelchair. We got so them all. Like, <laughs> Check. Check. Yeah. yeah, it definitely sometimes we can tell media when you're checking off boxes. We know. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like it's very, like it's very obvious versus when, it, when things feel truly inclusive. Um, like you can tell when it's like, Oh, they have the, now, now the new version of that is there's always in a, in a book, there's always one person in the background wearing a hijab. Yeah. <laughs> like, you just threw that in so you could check off the box. <laughs> it's true. But I think when done well, or even in a mediocre fashion, it does have conversations. So there was a kids' program, I think it's a Canadian program called Endlings, which mm. has one of the young kids in it has differently formed hands. So I don't know mm. what his story is supposed to be. But, you know, at the kind of end of his mid arm, it kind of turns, you know, into, he doesn't have the technical 10 fingers. And, you know, the first thing mm-hmm. of course I did was look up the actor and make sure it wasn't like, <laughs> I was like, I was so intrigued. I was like, Oh, is this actually an actor? Is this CI or whatever? I'm forgetting the word, but it was, it was an actor who, you know, had different arms. And my son kind of asked about it and he said, well, why doesn't he have like hands or fingers? And I was like, well, he does, you know, look what he's doing with them. You know, he was, writing with them and he was drawing with them and he was doing different things, but it had this whole conversation, how our bodies work in different ways that came out, you know, from this representation that this young actor was doing on the screen. And, you know, there's, I don't know that it was the perfect representation, you know, it's a sci-fi show anyway. So it's, you know, let it get away with a little bit more, but it was a young kid and he didn't speak, you know, in it. And we talked about why didn't the kids speak? And, you know, you're not quite sure at this point in the show, but it was just having that visual thing as a jumping off point. And then I think what's important for that is to not just say, Oh, everybody's different. Right. You know, that kid has different hands, you know, but talk about, Oh, what does it mean? Well, what can he do with his hands? You know, what can he do? What might be hard? And, it's just another exposure. You know, we want to expose our kids to different bodies and different ways of being. And I think you said it so well, it's like the conversation starter, right? Like, and that's why even just a hint of it in something like a television show or a children's book, it's such a great time to like, okay, let's have a conversation. Let's talk about that. Like, what do you think about that? You know, that's great. There's, there's something that I that I've adopted doing, which is when I'm, you know, again, I'm working mostly with younger kids. So I'll be talking a lot about, Oh, you have five fingers on your hand. You have two hands, you have two feet, whatever. And I'll always say, yeah, you have five fingers on your hand. Most people have five fingers on their hand or most people have, you know, two feet or many people, you know, instead of saying everybody. Yeah. Um, because I think that also opens up the conversation for, uh, it's not just like, oh, everyone has this. And then when we see someone else, we have to include them into the conversation. You know, uh, I have to be like, oh, except that person. Right. Uh, you know, <laughs> it was much less othering. I think when we just include it from the beginning of like, yeah, most people um, or many people uh, have this or that. That's another one of those general parenting things too, right? Avoid absolute statements. Yes. Because <laughs> 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 they're almost never true. <laughs> Generalizations. Yeah. 
All right, now it's time for some announcements. We actually have a few announcements today. Um, firstly, the thing I'm most excited about is last week we did our first story and music times virtually, and it was so much fun. Thank you so much to everybody who turned out. Um, it was just really a good time. The next one will be Saturday, April 11th at 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Definitely check out the Facebook page for future events and times. Hopefully we'll be able to keep doing this because I'm having a lot of fun with it. Uh, basically what I do is I have my ukulele, I sing some songs, I read some books, uh, and it's really just a great time. So hopefully you will join us next time. It's totally free. You're obviously welcome to donate if you'd like, uh, but there's absolutely no obligation. I just know what it's like to be stuck in the house with kids um, as a nanny. And so I can't imagine uh, what some of y'all are going through uh, with everything that's going on right now. So uh, I just wanted to be able to provide a little bit of, of fun in that time. So I hope to see you there. The next thing is just that, as some of you may have heard in our last episode, unfortunately uh, I had a little accident and my computer is dead, so that obviously is making it significantly uh, more difficult for me to record and edit episodes. Uh, I'm doing my best to keep up with the schedule, uh, so hopefully things won't get uh, behind. I decided to start a crowdfunder to try and raise the money to get a new laptop um, so that I can hopefully continue the podcast and uh, keep doing this work that's really important to me. So if you're uh, able to share the uh, crowdfunder or donate even a dollar, it would really, really mean the world to me. Thank you so, so much to the folks who have already been able to donate. Bonnie, Laura, Mick, Liz, Marley, Char, Carol, Rebecca, Tristan, and all the other folks who have been able to donate. I just really, really appreciate it. Uh, and thank you so much for your support. Um, and you can find that on our Facebook page. That's uh, Radchild Podcast on Facebook or on our website, www.radchildpodcast.com. Uh, it's the second thing that shows up. It's really easy to find. Other than that, it's just the regular stuff. You can follow us uh, at Radchild Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you want to reach out to us, you can email radchildpodcast at gmail.com or go to www.radchildpodcast.com and head to the contact section. In the contact section, you'll also find the form if you'd like to be a guest. So if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, please fill out that form. It takes about five minutes. Uh, so we'd love to hear from you. If you would like to join the ranks of Emma, Kai, and Alex and be a Patreon and donate uh, as little as a dollar a month to us, you can go to patreon.com slash bradchildspodcast and pick some awesome rewards like bloopers, Discord access, care packages, kids books, and all sorts of really cool things. Um, I really am itching for somebody to select the care package uh, tier because I really love sending care packages. Uh, it's just so much fun to me. <laughs> so if you are so inclined, head over to Patreon and uh, look at all of the cool rewards we have over there. Um, our Etsy shop is also live. So if you go to the website, www.radchildpodcast.com and click on shop, you can find it there. Or if you go on Etsy and search Radchild Podcast, you can find all of our cool swag. We've got really cool buttons. We've got um, postcards. We've got stickers, all kinds of cool things. So definitely check that out. 
All right, uh, without further ado, I'm going to hand it over to Crystal and Rebecca. Do you wish more picture books truly reflected your family's values? Have you ever thought you found the perfect book, but when you got it home, it completely missed the mark? Shift Book Box is a picture book subscription service for kids ages 3 to 8, built around themes of social justice and centering diverse characters and creators. Each box features two beautiful picture books as well as expertly crafted discussion guides. We know that families want to engage kids in conversations about social justice topics, and we recognize how challenging it can be to find the right books and to feel supported in having these conversations. We find the books... We provide the prompts. You get both delivered to your door. Subscribe today at shiftbookbox.com and use the code RADCHILD. RADCHILD. All one word. RADCHILD. RADCHILD. For 10% off your first order. Shift Bookbox. Curating little libraries. Cultivating big change. All right. Back to the show. But I was just going to say, it's been interesting seeing, like, with my, my daughter who's young, and fortunately, she doesn't have, she has a little eczema, and that's about it, thank goodness. Mm. But it's been interesting to see her understanding of the world develop through, like, because she comes to my work, we talk about what I do on a regular basis, she comes to my private practice in my office. And it's just interesting to see her develop this understanding of the world that I, I would have to say is much more diverse than how I was when I was young, you know? Yeah, for sure. And on all, all sorts of domains, culturally, um, disability, illness, uh, gender, um, the understanding of what makes up a family, like all of that is just so much more large um, in her mind than, than it was in mine, which I think it's really cool to see that. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's amazing. I mean, same for... My children too. Yeah, I think we're we're lucky in the sense that I think it's becoming a little more common and there's a little more resources. I mean, you know, like even just talking again about children's books, like there were I never read a children's book about you know, I don't I don't think I don't know if there even were any when I was growing up about like two dad families or two mom families or like gender diversity. You know what I mean? It just didn't exist. Um, and uh, so I think that there's a lot of there's a lot more resources now. Um, maybe they're not perfect, but they exist, which yeah. is nice. <laughs> we're on the we're on the right. We're going in the right direction. Yes, yeah. which is nice for a change, right? <laughs> so we were t- we talked about this a little bit before, but um, what this is kind of I don't know. This is kind of a tricky, trickily worded question. But like, at what age do you think kids can can really grasp the concept of you know a chronic illness and um, and how and how do we figure out how much information to give them? So um, I had quite a lengthy discussion with my colleagues about that because we all agreed that um, we don't integrate uh, truly the concept of death um, until late teens. Mm. Um, but to understand a chronic illness. Uh, that it's not going away, that it's going to affect everyday life. Uh, We agreed that around seven to eight years old, Mm -hmm. uh, children are able to grasp these concepts. Um, Like I said, even if they don't seem like they do, uh, they think about it. And um, if you talk to them about it, they will come back to you and say like, yeah, you know what you said, I get it. I have some more questions, but they get it. 
Yeah. And not to say that you shouldn't talk to kids who are younger about those things, obviously. No, not at all. But just to maybe not expect them to have the full understanding yeah. of it. At Absolutely. Age four, you know, yeah. You want, you want to kind of serve it in smaller portions to, to smaller kids. Yeah. And just give them the information that they need and the information that they're looking for too. We were talking about this earlier about the idea of like you, you know, answering a question with a question of like, if they're asking, you know, a, a question saying, well, what do you already know about that? What do you want to know about that? And not necessarily mm-hmm. giving them, like you were saying, like for some details or like, uh, you know, too much information because just the information that they're looking for. Uh, I can speak a bit about child development at least because mm. there is, of course, you know, the answer is like, we don't know exactly. Right. But, <laughs> um in terms of, there are certain <laughs> neurodevelopmental things that are going to come into play. Okay, so in really young children, like toddlers, right, they don't really have a strong understanding of time. So mm-hmm. they're very much living in the present moment, and they're very, very, very concrete. So yes. you can still talk to them about chronic illness and life-limiting and life-threatening illness, but you want to think about those <clears throat> two factors while you're talking to them, right? Yes. And keeping it and references to what's happening right now and keeping things concrete. But as children age, they develop more and more ability to understand these concepts. Mm. So we can change a little bit about the type of information we're giving in those moments. Sorry, I have something in my throat. <clears> throat> okay. Um, and How dare you? Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> but I think another thing to keep in mind is like discussions about illness or disability or anything like that is not a one-time thing. These are yeah. discussions that you'll keep having because as children develop, they're going to come back to you with different questions or they're going to have different things that they're wondering about because as their brain develops, they understand things in a different way. Right. So like something that I typically see will be um, dealing with loss. Right. So uh, maybe a grandparent died when the child was young, like five. And they understood that as, you know, granddad is not around anymore. He died. And then they get to an older age where they start asking questions. But then what happens after you die? Or maybe they're going to be thinking Mm -hmm. more about the these existential questions or referring it back to an understanding of themselves with the questions like, is that going to happen to me? And, and I think it's important for parents to be open to having continued discussions and not thinking like, okay, we had the discussion finished. I don't have to do it again. You know? Also something that we talk about a lot, especially I think the best example is the idea. There's this idea of the sex talk where there's one talk Mm -hmm. and then it's done. And I'm like, no, we should be like constantly, you know, not constantly talking about sex, but you know what I mean? <laughs> constantly having these conversations and uh, it shouldn't, it, there's this idea when we have these sort of more serious conversations, right? That like, oh, it's one conversation. And no, it should be like an open door conversation that we're all constantly having. Um, and I, I think that that's, that's really important to remember that it's not just a one and done yeah. um, thing, especially, I mean, also right for, I mean, for anybody, but especially for children who, you know, have different developmental things going going on, where it's like when they're younger, you know, you can't expect you to tell, to tell them something once and they're remembering all of it or absorbing all of it in the way that you want them to. Um, but I think about, like, especially with kids, um, because sometimes I can't 
having narcolepsy, sometimes I get tired and I can't always be as active, you know, I get fatigued and I can't always be as active as I, uh, um, used to be able to. And I, you know, and I, I'm very open about just like in that, again, in the moment. And also sometimes like, even with my young, young kids, I'll be like, you know, remember I told you that like, sometimes I feel this way and right now I'm feeling that way and I have to lay down on the couch. And I think like, for me, like I'll explain things even to young children. Um, am I expecting them to absorb everything? No. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I don't know. I just have this idea of like treating them like people. You're, plant, you're planting <laughs> little seeds of understanding, right? You're like, here's a little seed. Yeah. We'll get back to that later. And they, and it's so funny because my, my wife has um, chronic depression and anxiety uh-huh. and it's very severe and to the point where it, you know, it limits her ability to do a lot of things. And uh, we have three and nieces who are, gosh, they're almost four and six now. But, uh, you know, my, so my wife would have to tell them like, you know, I can't always, always do everything. And sometimes it was a big deal um, that sometimes she would have to take naps. Like if she was staying at their house for a whole day or something, she might have to take a nap. And my niece at the time was probably four. And she was like, I get that because I take naps and like, <laughs> and, and literally put her to bed and sang her the song that her parents sing her and like gave her a little stuffed animal. I was like, okay, you know, she's like, I get it. Cause like I take naps too. It makes sense. Um, but was able to understand probably more so than the adults in the family, to be honest, like I get it. Like you just need to rest now. You need a break. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> I was gonna. Um, there's one more thing though. I wanted to say also about like having just yeah. one big conversation about something heavy, be it sex, be it death, be it illness. It, the other thing too is that when we just do one conversation, it it models to the child that this is a big big deal that my parent is uncomfortable talking about, mm-hmm. and that's why they need to have a special moment to do it. And I don't think that's the idea that most parents want to be giving their child about yep. it. But that when we make it like a we need to have a serious talk, well. I know that that used to make me freak out when my parents would say that because they'd be like, well, geez, they're worried about it. It must be something that I should be nervous and worried about also. Kids can sense energy at any age. Kids can sense your energy. Well, they're watching your Um, behavior. They're nonverbal communicators, right? So like, yeah, I think being like, okay, this is a, this is something we talk about, and that's and that's okay. And like, you, I'm here to answer questions. I'm here to clarify, and you know, I, I'm transgender, and I feel the same way when I talk to people about my gender. Like, if I make it a big deal, it becomes a big deal. If I'm just like, yeah, I use he/him pronouns, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not a big deal. Um, you know, and I, I just remember at one point my mother was like, well, because like I, she had been at a job, and I had see, you know she lives in Texas, so I don't go there all the time. And back when I was in college, before I transitioned, I had met some of her coworkers and then I transitioned and, you know, had not been back since. And she was like, well, my coworkers keep asking about my daughter. And I like, I don't know what to say. I'm just like, just be like, yeah, he's my son now. It's fine. Yeah. Just like, don't make a big deal out of it. Just be like, yeah, he's okay. And they'll be like, he, and you'll be like, yeah. Yeah. And it's not, it's not as okay. I'm going to go fold the laundry now. Like whatever, (laughs) (laughs) you know? Um, and uh, I think that like kids especially can definitely like they sense that energy. And like when I, you know, when, in the past when I've explained uh, about my transness to kids who have asked, they're just like, okay, let's go play with trains now. Like they don't, you know, when you don't make it a big deal, it's not a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. I've been, I get asked a lot about parents in the hearing impairment program about like the hearing aids and like other mm-hmm. children asking about the hearing aids and the parent being afraid that their child will be bullied because of it. 
And what I often try to explain to parents is those questions are coming from a place of curiosity mm-hmm. most of the time. And if you answer them, if you answer their curiosity by explaining, oh, that's something that helps them here. Conversations yep. over, you know, like yeah. not conversations over, stop talking about it, but I mean, like <laughs> they just want to know what it's for. They're not there to be like, they just want to know. And so you tell yeah. them. And then sometimes I think even making it, kind of interesting it's like oh that's to help them here isn't it kind of amazing what technology does yeah you know, and it's, yeah so it's on the shift because I think too often parents shut it down because they're worried about pointing out the differences but yeah that yeah. makes the difference seem worse like oh well don't talk about his hearing aid why because it's a bad thing because it's a secret yeah. you know as differences are bad because differences yeah, are bad. Oh, that person is that person yeah. is missing an arm. You know, what do you think happened? Like, don't point. You know, then suddenly that becomes a bad thing, as opposed to, well, I don't know. I don't know their story. You know, maybe if we knew them, we could ask. But you know, probably that's not the first thing you would want to say to a person. Or like, I don't know. Why don't you go sit next to them on the bus and start talking? You know, and then as opposed to just no, we don't talk about that. That's a bad thing. Or don't point at that. You know person you think is a man wearing a dress like oh isn't it nice how people can choose how they express themselves Mm -hmm. you know we don't know their story as you know so I think it is it's just interesting in trying to be kind or aware that we often make a difference seem negative Mm -hmm. yeah I I remember and again I always bring it back to gender because that's what's going on in my life but <laughs> um there was one time that I was on the tra- the train in New York I was on the subway and this little girl I love that she I think what she was trying to ask was like if I was a boy or a girl but she said are you a mommy <laughs> and I was like no are you a mommy and she was like no and she was like we have so much in common <laughs> it was so funny um but the mother of course was like mortified that you know she's asking this but I was just like no what about you like when kids ask me uh if I'm a boy or a girl it's like the same thing I'm like no I'm you know I'm a boy like what about you are you a boy or a girl and they'll be like well I'm a boy I'm like great it's yeah. cool everybody can like be different it's good and I always encourage them like it's really great to you know ask people and not make it as opposed to making assumptions. Well, it's my, I always say that to my six-year-old daughter. And a few months ago we were on the bus and there was what appeared to be a female bus driver. And I mentioned, I was like, Oh, well the woman up at the front and I had made a conscious decision to say woman. Cause I think the assumption is that bus drivers are often male. So I thought mm-hmm. I was being proactive. My daughter stopped me and she goes, <laughs> how do you know that that's a woman? I said, well, I saw her when I got on the bus. And she said, I thought you said you couldn't tell what somebody was just by looking at them. Yes. And I was like, oh, well, I'm corrected, you know, but it's like they they are, (laughs) they're ready to take it in, you know, and now I joke that my daughter asks everybody their personal pronouns. And I'm like, you know, you know, you don't need to ask the bus driver their pronouns. (laughs) I love that so much. But it's, um, But it's just, she likes getting to know people and it's always the part of, oh, can I ask you, you know, about you? And yeah. And that's what that mother question was probably about on the, it was on the subway, was it? That like, yeah, she just, she just trying to get to know you, you know? Like, exactly. And I, and that's why I try not to take offense of like, yeah. well, it's the same, we were talking about, um, 
in our episode on uh, fat positivity, we were talking about, you know, when people are pointing at someone and being like, that's that person's fat or like that person's large or I mean, whatever, right? It's like that person has one arm, that person's black, that person's, you know, whatever it is that kids are pointing out, it is mostly about curiosity and not about uh, being malicious most of the time. Yeah. Uh, maybe with older kids, sometimes it, you know, it could be a different story. Um, but most of the time with young kids, they're just like, Oh, that's, that's something like, that's a tree. That's a black, that person's <laughs> black. Like it, it's not, you know, it's not about, um, maliciousness. And so I think we have to remember, uh, to treat it that, you know, as, as a curiosity and not as, you know, Oh, we can't talk about that. You know? Right. And the same can be said for illness too, which it might be less obvious or less visible, right. Mm. From the outside of things like, you know, like kids that might get nauseous and vomit a lot because of their illness. You can say like that's part of that's related because they have this illness and it makes them feel really sick sometimes and they're going to and they need to do that sometimes and maybe they'll feel better after. But like just being OK with being clear about that stuff and not afraid yeah. to talk about it, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, Heather, earlier you we were talking a little bit about or you had mentioned sort of that kind of like the the guilt a little bit of feeling like bad about not being able to do things you see able to do and things like that. And I'm curious like how, and you know, this is, can be a question for both of you. I'm just thinking about it because you mentioned it, um, but how we can help, you know, both parents and children deal with sort of like that guilt of feeling like, oh, I can't do, you know, what I used to be able to do or things like that. So for the guilt of parents uh, regarding uh, their childcare, think it's important to rhyme to remind them that it's not their fault because yeah. it usually isn't yeah. it's very rare that you could actually blame somebody for their illness <laughs> um so you know remind them of that and and do it consistently uh, um as a, a caregiver in my case um and help them see that even though there are things that they can't do for their kids, they can still do the most important things. And that is to love them, mm-hmm. um, to listen to them, and to support them in their projects and endeavors and their growths. So just because you can't play football anymore with your kid doesn't mean you're a bad parent or just because yeah, you're, you need more rest than another parent doesn't mean you're a bad parent and um, kind of have to um, have a discussion. I think also with the parents and the kids and the kids will tell them, you know, if you, prompt them a little bit if you help them voice it that they don't um they're not mad usually at their parents for being sick uh if the parents are still trying to be parents yeah Uh, they are worried they are anxious uh they may be upset but they don't usually resent truly i feel like i think it's similar to you know my my wife has um chronic depression and anxiety and there are some times where I'm like I'm mad at your anxiety I'm not mad at you yeah you know it's like I feel like I'm I'm mad mad at life for doing this to you you. yeah like I'm mad that you were sort of given this you know thing that feels unfair Um, yeah but never I'm like never mad at you that right you didn't you know didn't have enough spoons to go to brunch or whatever yeah Um, but you know what I mean 
Um, yeah. And, then, and it's also come back to managing expectations. Yeah. If, if as a parent, you have an illness that makes it so there are things you can't do anymore, you have to tell your kids. You can't pretend yeah. um, that there are other reasons. You have to tell them. Uh, otherwise, then they may start to resent you because yeah. they'll feel like you don't love them anymore, or not the same way that you did before. Yeah. So I think that's the most important part. Uh, I know there's also guilt um, in parents uh, associated with their children's illness. Mm-hmm. Um, and then again, you have to uh, remind them that it's not their fault because, again, very, very rare that it's a parent's fault yeah. unless they've abused their child or they had some you know, genetic condition that they knew about yeah. and knew that their child would inherit, then they're usually prepared for that aspect. Um, so remind the parent you know, that it's not your fault. You, you could not have known this would happen to your child um, and you're doing your best in their circumstances. Uh, your family's there to support you. The medical team is there to support yeah. you. And you can help your child in these ways. And we're going to help you do it. Uh, just really, really important to repeat it because it takes a long time to integrate it. And it's not rare that in these circumstances, I will refer uh, the parents or the family for therapy. Because yeah. when you're treating a child, you're not just treating the child. You're treating the whole family. Yeah, for sure. Um, as for uh, a child's guilt and uh, in the illness of a family member, um, I think the most important part is, again, you know, honesty, consistency, and reminding them it's not their fault because they have tremendous imagination. And, you know, it can seem really, really silly, but I've heard and I've seen children really, really beat themselves up Um, over their siblings illness because they think uh, it's their fault because they had a fight earlier Mm -hmm. and in their heads they wished um, bad stuff on their sibling and then they think oh it's because I thought that that now my sibling is ill and obviously (laughs) it's not the case and you have to remind them and you have to to kind of screen for that um have to be careful to even to as think. adults we fall into those kinds of thoughts sometimes. yes absolutely like, so my my father passed away when I was 14 and uh that like I was away at sleepaway camp when it happened and my my mom made the decision not to tell me until the end of the week like he had passed away on a Tuesday and uh she they picked me up on Friday and cause mm-hmm. they were, she was like, listen, like, it's going to be shitty either way. We'd rather you have like this one last nice thing before, um, mm-hmm. instead of, like pulling you out of camp in the middle of the week. So anyway, but the day that he actually died, I was talking with my, I like remember this so clearly. I was talking with my friend and mm-hmm. it was like, she, my friend was adopted. And at the time my friend's parents were getting divorced. My other friend had lost a father and, you know, everybody sort of had, you know, all these sort of situations going on in their lives. And, and I made a comment. I was like, I almost feel left out. And my dad died that day. Wow. <laughs> and and like, like, as a teenager, <laughs> as a teenager, I was like, it's because I said that thing, you know, yeah. obviously that's not what happened. Um, but, but it's funny, like even not funny, but you know what I mean? It's like, even as, yeah. uh, you know, teens or adults, I feel like sometimes we, um, put, you know, can put weight, uh, weight in those kinds of things and sort of uh 
put that on ourselves. <laughs> yeah. So you really have to check in on the family yeah. because especially with the children illnesses, it's really puts uh, a heavy load, uh, not just on the child and the parents, but the siblings and the grandparents can be really yeah. strained as well. For sure on everybody. Um, you know, I think guilt is a useless emotion unless it changes your behavior in a positive way. Right. So I think when I first got sick, I had been connected to a woman I didn't know as a friend of a friend who had Emmy as well, you know, and I started talking to her just for support. And she was like, it sounds like you have Emmy. And I was like, I don't, you know, because I wanted it to be <laughs> one of the many other things that were solvable. I was like, oh, I have Hashimoto's. I'm just going to take these pills and it's going to get better. Oh, I have this, you know, I have vertigo. I'm just going to do my vestibular therapy and it's going to get better. But of course, you know, it didn't. But at one point I talked to her and I was, she's a mother as well. And she said to me, you are mothering. You're just mothering differently. Mm-hmm. And that became my mantra in a way. So it's like I could have guilt about what I couldn't do or I could focus on what I could. And mm-hmm. having a chronic illness didn't take away who I essentially am as a mom, although I, some of the trappings that I identified with, you know, being super active, you know, I had, it didn't take away my heart and it didn't take away my Mm. soul and it didn't take away my love for my kids. You know, it did mean in certain moments of exhaustion, I had (laughs) less patience and less ability to engage and might've been angrier, you know, that I learned to deal with those things. Um, But like the fact, like in the end, is my kid going to remember more that I was emotionally there for them or that I could play kickball in the playground, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And not saying there's nothing to that, that there can't be a loss, but like the guilt wasn't serving me. It was making me, a worse parent because I was focusing all on what I couldn't do. Um, And, you know, and there's some great essays. I know there's this woman, Jessica slice, who is a parent with chronic illness as well, who's written some beautiful essays, but, you know, she talks in one about how she finally gets a motorized wheelchair, you know, and she's also doesn't have to be in it always and how it made her a better parent, you know, because it let Mm. her, do more. And it's kind of just embracing everything that, you know, she has, you know, and there's still pain and fatigue and living with a chronic illness, but how we work as parents to become a better version of ourselves, whatever we have. And I don't know, it's just all of those things kind of out there. It's like, what do we do with those tools? And it's also been helpful to connect to communities of parents with chronic illness Mm-hmm. because you see how we're all dealing with very different things, but so many similar things too, and just getting support around that and techniques and strategies and realizing that, you know, I give things that other parents can't give. And, you know, my physical abilities may be higher on some days and lowers and higher and lower than somebody else. But that comparison is just, it's, useless it's useless to me or to my relationship with my kids 
It's interesting to hear you talk, Heather, because it reminds me of like one of, I keep saying like, it reminds me of kind of an overarching aspect of parenting, which is what do you value or what is important for you as a parent? You know, when you were saying like, is the kickball really what's going to be important for me as a parent or is it being present and being emotionally available to my child? And I think that's so key especially when parents are groping with guilt and comparisons of like, sometimes we're comparing on stuff that doesn't even really matter, you know, to us in the long run, really. Like, yeah, no, I don't have, true. I can't provide my child such a nice house. Who cares? They don't care. You know, what, what really, really matters to the parent and what really, really matters for what they want their child to know of them as a parent, you know? And I find that can be such a guiding principle in in letting go of the guilt and letting go of the comparison and and adapting adopting rather those things that are most important and making sure that that's what's happening in your relationship with your child and I think and also just to add on it's like not to minimize that there can be a loss you know I know mm-hmm. parents in chronic illness who have never been able to attend their kids swim meet when they're a swimmer because they can't leave the house or to attend this And there is a loss, you know, like that's not great. It's not great for your kid. It's not great for you. There are days when, you know, my kids have gone off in the weekend and I've been in bed and they send me pictures and I cry because I want to be there. So not to say it's just like painting roses over it. Like, you know, yeah, I have the chronic illness. (laughs) It doesn't matter because, you know, I get to listen to knock knock jokes. Like, no, there is a loss. There is a loss for the kids and there's a loss for me. But we can either let that guide us or figure out what we can still have so it's like you know and I hate to be like yes you know it's great that you know and like do I hope that I'll get better sure and like am I better than I was two years ago when I couldn't do anything with my kids and has that changed my life for the better absolutely like you know I don't want this they don't want it but it also gives them tools of empathy and understanding and consideration and compromise that they might not have otherwise, you know, an independence yeah. and there's things that come out of it, you know, but I always like hate to be like, Oh, you know, just to make it seem like, yeah, you know, just you could focus on the negative or the positive, you know, it's positive. I'm in pain all day. Like it's not, but like, <laughs> no. but you know, what do you, and I'm not, you know, and I'm not one of those people, but I know there are people who are, but it is kind of still in the end, like, is this serving me or is it not? And like, how yeah. do we, yeah move from this point yeah and it sounds too that you verbalize the willingness to like it's not like for example the not being able to go to the recital or something right it's not like that parent doesn't want to be there they can't be there and I think it's important to verbalize that too to kids right like that they understand Mm. where you're coming from as well just to- yeah. And to let them be upset, you know, like yeah. it used to be like, well, I can't come. It's not my fault, but like, you can still be angry, you know, yeah. like, to my kids. I let them be like, you can be angry that I couldn't come there. You can be sad. Yeah. You can be mad at me, even though it's not my fault, you know? Yeah. And, you know, so there's some of that, but there's, so there's another book that overall, like it's fine. Um, <laughs> but there's a page in it that I like, it's called mommy has to stay in bed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know why it's always a mommy. No one else can have a chronic illness in children's books. Um, but there's there's a page where 
Uh, and this, this book in particular is more about, because at the end it says like, oh, and mommy, you know, just waiting for mommy to get better. And I'm like, oh, well, you ruined it. Um, yeah. But, <laughs> but it's more it. for a temporary, uh, you know, temporary, maybe you're bedridden after a surgery or some, for some temporary reason. Um, but anyway, there's one page where, uh, again, it's that idea of like, you know, it's okay to be angry about it. Um but, you know, it's like, sometimes I'm really mad about it. And mommy, you know, mommy tells me to like scream into a pillow or like, you know, however different ways they say to like, get your anger out. And I'm like, I really like that being able to not just like everything sunshine and roses, you know, like, yeah, sometimes we're mad, you know, we're mad about it. And like, your feelings are valid. And like, it's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, it's okay to be mad about it. So something else, gosh, I don't know what it is that one of you said that made me think about this, but um in sort of going back to like how to talk to kids about it and how, you know, how to sort of explain it. Um, this is more disability theory, but are either of you familiar with spoon theory? Yes. <laughs> I'm not. Oh, oh, well, let's talk about spoon theory. Okay. I'm obsessed with spoon theory. My wife and I use this terminology all day long. Spoonies, so basically, spoonies. Yes. So um, spoon theory is this idea that every, so every day everybody starts out with a number of spoons um, and you should visualize those as actual spoons. So, you know, um, this, the, the sort of background, the, it's like a little bit of a legend. We don't know if it's true or not. Is that like someone with a disability was trying to explain this while at a restaurant with a friend and they literally just took all the spoons on the table. (laughs) And that's how they explained this. Basically it's like everybody every day has a certain number of spoons. Right. And so, uh, let's say, you know, someone like I might have 10 spoons a day. My wife with her disability might only start with five spoons a day. Um, and everything you do takes a spoon. So maybe getting out of bed takes one whole spoon for my wife. Uh, maybe, you know, baking a meal takes one whole spoon for her. Taking a shower takes one spoon. Um, and basically it's this idea that like we're not all starting with the same amount of spoons Mm -hmm. Uh, and spoons might cost different things that you know that cost might be different for different people so for my wife she might have to decide well do I want to use a whole spoon to take a shower like that's a lot of effort and like maybe that's really hard for me today Mm -hmm. or it might take two spoons to get out of bed today um and so I think that that's also like I love the idea of just like putting spoons in front of a kid and being like, okay, like if I want to do this today, that's going to take one. Like it's a very visual, like we were talking about before visual aids, I think are very helpful. And that idea that it's like, well, you know, this is how, you know, it's hard for me to do this. And you know, this takes one spoon and that takes one spoon. And all of a sudden I have no spoons left. Right. Um, And uh, so I like, I like that idea as a visual aid. It um, makes me think, it makes me think of the uh, filling the bucket metaphor that's used a lot for emotions at schools, right? Like I got to fill my bucket or it's taking out of my bucket. It's kind of a similar idea, right? Yeah. You can't add them back. Like I can't, you know, no one can give you, yeah, no one can give you Mm. spoons and there's not always a set number of spoons. And like sometimes if you use spoons one day, it's not like the next day they necessarily replenish, you know, but I have used that. It's like, well, I can do this with you and not that. Um, My Wi-Fi is actually, my husband named it abundant cutlery. So we'd have lots. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. But yeah, my, my wife and I use that, use that all the time. And people who will refer to ourselves as spoonies. Yeah. uh, Yeah. I just read that on Wikipedia as I quickly Googled while you guys were talking. Yeah. 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 But it's a, it's a really useful, it's a really useful theory. And I think even for adults, like, like we've used it to explain my wife's, um, you know, energy level to like her family members and things like that. Um, I think it's just a really, I don't, 
don't know. I'm, I'm a very visual person. So once you start talking visual things, I'm like, okay, I get it now. <laughs> and also you yeah, can use I could... it with different, oh, sorry. I didn't mean to. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to say the same metaphor you could use with another object too, if that speaks more to the child, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. yeah. And then yeah. it's also, it takes some of the, I don't have spoons for that as opposed to, I can't do that. I don't have the energy for that. I don't know. It's like a somewhat an easier way a, it's little like emotional, a little emotional distance from it. So like, yeah. Mm-hmm. My last question before we start to wrap up a little bit is um, how do we, this is sort of a, a tough one, but how do we help children build resilience? So like I'm mm. defining that as the capacity to rise above difficult circumstances. Um, do you have ideas about that? Right. So um like I said earlier, when it comes to um, chronic illness and terminal illness, while you do want to manage their expectations about um, the illness, you also don't want to crush their hopes. Mm. It's really, really important that they have hope. Even if it's a small thing, you want to support them in their projects. And you don't want to say stuff like, well, you can't do that because you're ill. Or you can't do that because you're going to die anyway. <laughs> Obviously, that's a horrible thing to say. But you would be surprised at what the, what the people in grief uh, will say. Yeah. Um, so you want to support them. Even in the smallest of projects, you want them to feel like they have control, like they can achieve stuff. And what, like what they do matters in this world. Um, even if they're going to be, you know, um, having a short stay on earth, Mm. um, for resiliency as well, really, um, we tend to, uh, underestimate the, the importance of extended, extended family, Mm. Uh, because obviously when a child is ill, uh, the parents are under a lot of stress, a lot of pressure. Uh, they may be very tired from from caring uh, for that child. So you want to have extended family and, and close friends around to sort of uh, give them uh, the occasion to build resilience through uh, advice, uh, you know, it may be an uncle or an aunt or a cousin, um, kind of get them space um, away from the people who give them the most care yeah. because these people are absorbed in the illness and they have difficulty stepping back. Yeah. It's a difficult thing for humans and some people do it wonderfully. But uh, especially at the beginning, it's really hard for parents. So you want to have people who are a little on the outside yeah. to, um, to guide them, to give them some, uh, yeah, some space to talk about their projects and explore. So uh, that's one thing. Well, that's two things. And again, <laughs> like I'm repeating myself, but you have to be honest with children because a child who doesn't know is a child who is scared yeah. and a child who is scared cannot become resilient. Yeah. No, I think that's really interesting about the sort of like taking space away. I, there's my uh, mother-in-law uh, was recently diagnosed with terminal cancer and mm-hmm. um, there's one family member who every time, you know, who's like fairly a close family member, but every time she visits, that's all she wants to talk mm-hmm. about it's her cancer. Like she's not a part, you know, it's like, she's not a person anymore. And she's like, I don't mm-hmm. want to sit and talk about my cancer all day. 
you know, yeah. I'm still like a person. I still, you know, have things, you know, I'm doing things and like living my life. And um, I think sometimes, especially it can happen, you know, the people who are very close, um, like I know my father-in-law sort of has trouble separating himself from that because he's her caretaker right now. Yeah. Um, and I think it's nice to, you know, be able to step back. Like we all spent Christmas there and it was really nice because it was just like a normal Christmas. Um, mm-hmm. We didn't need to be. And I was like, whatever, she needs to take a nap in the middle of the day. That's fine. We all took a nap in the middle of the day because <laughs> my wife and I are also big nappers because I have narcolepsy and she has depression. Um, so we always nap. So now we have validated. It's so, str- it's so funny though. Like, before my mother-in-law got sick, no one understood, like my wife, you know, it was a fight for her to like take a nap if we were at a family function or if we were staying, yeah. staying over. And now everybody just gets nap time. That's <laughs> um, great. That's awesome. Like, I'm, I'm like, I'm sorry that it took this for everybody to understand that sometimes people need naps, but like, <laughs> it's really, um, it's kind of nice now. You know, get naps. <laughs> not, well, not the children what? all the adults the children were fine they were playing and we were all like we're tired <laughs> yeah i was like a nap yeah i can use more naps in my life a lot of it's stuff we've already talked about today right like understanding and it's interesting you put this question because i was just like all up in resilience literature yesterday because uh, <laughs> <laughs> i'm running a group for school age the parents of school age kids mm. so this was kind of like a interesting topic to look into but like just that whole discussion we were having about strengths and weaknesses and understanding like where you're thriving and where you're struggling and I think all of that is really great for building resilience because you're saying like hey we're struggling but we we can keep we can keep going we can use other skills to get past what we're struggling with or maybe we're struggling with this aspect but we got this other thing that's going well and like that more nuanced way of looking at life it's going back to like the rose-colored glasses again right like everything's not rosy so what do we do when it's not you know yeah uh, I, like I have a I have a tangent story about resilience Go for which it. might have been what triggered me to look into it I uh, made the mistake of thinking I could cross-country ski my daughter home from daycare a few days ago. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, the thing about Montreal, we get a lot of snow here, which seems like uh-huh. a good idea until it's not. Anyways, long story short, I cried. She cried. We cried together. Because um, <laughs> what happened is essentially I had to take off all the gear to keep throwing the sled over snowbanks because I couldn't get past the snowbanks along the way. And... Uh, yeah, and it was one of those moments as a parent where I'm like, God damn it, this is a teaching moment. Like, I gotta, I gotta like, do this. So even though I was very frustrated, I was trying to sprinkle in those comments of like, okay, you know, this is really tough, but we got this. I think we got this. We're going to get home. And my daughter is saying things like, we should call somebody. we got this we got this and and it was a struggle the whole time it actually took a half hour trip took us two hours and then we finally yeah and anyways we finally got to um our street and like de-skied and we were walking and my little girl she looks up to me and she goes we did it I was like lesson learned yes (laughs) yeah oh my gosh I I Oh, go ahead. No, I'm just going to say like that was, that was, that was resilience teaching, you know, straight up. I, um, I was just going to say 
not resilience related, snow tangent related. (laughs) The other day I thought it would be a good idea. So I have the twins and the, um, the sidewalks, they don't. So here in Montreal, Heather, they are better about clearing snow, but not depending on where you are, what neighborhood it might take a couple days, but they actually have like little plows for the sidewalks. Mm -hmm. So they usually clear, clear the sidewalks. They did not, they had not done that since it snowed. We got like a couple of snowfalls right after each other. So it was a little tricky. Um, and the, so the sidewalk was not cleared enough for me to have, I have a side-by-side stroller. For oh. the twins. So there was no way. And so we were trapped in the house for three days. <gasps> I am with them for like eight and a half hours a day. I was like pulling my hair out. I was like, that's it. We're walking. <laughs> we're going to a cafe. We're going to walk. And I made two 20 month olds walk to a cafe in snow, <laughs> which is fun on the way there fine they were great on the way home throwing themselves they were i mean they were tired it was too far it was an experiment and um it was just too far for them to walk but on the way home i literally i must have looked like a monster i had like one on my shoulders and i was literally like practically dragging the other one like forcing him to walk i was like we gotta go we gotta go it's just like oh, we're gonna be here forever um there's just, like one okay. block like that but man the we've snow all, is like, <laughs> we've all had those snow stroller experiences i definitely broke a stroller once God. but are they clear the streets so but not then the, the crosswalks i mean not the crosswalks that corners where they would kind of go in i remember getting stuck with the stroller and trying to pick the stroller up and two kids and just be like somebody help me (laughs) i love that (laughs) we need to call somebody somebody (laughs) grab one of these kids i don't know what to do oh my gosh i know it was so bad it was so bad that strangers were offering to help they were like are you okay okay? no i'm not Oh my gosh! But anyway, so there you um, go. Snow, snow builds resilience. <laughs> Come to Montreal, build your children's resilience. Well, I think part of, I mean, what sticks out to me is both of the stories that you told show kids witnessing uh, a struggle you had, right? And it's like yeah. a lot of times we try to hide our struggles from our kids because yeah. we don't want to burden them but then it's like oh things come easy right so it's like if we can show or explain kind of how we're persevering in a non-luxury way you know that it's it's good for them it's good for them to know you know in the same way kind of like if I am having a hard time communicating and I yell at my spouse or my kids as opposed to just brushing it over being like "Ooh, I didn't do that great. How can I do that better? Even though I'm having a hard time or if I have a success, you know, in writing and I say, Oh, I got this published. And be like, Oh, do you know how many times I sent it out? You know, just so like, or we can give them the tools when something's hard. For yeah. Them. yeah. I don't know. I feel like none of that was actually very good, but um, no, but no, I think that think, makes a lot of sense. I think a lot of times we do, we hide that things are hard mm-hmm. and we show kind of, the shiny and God, especially with social media, right? We see the end result, yeah. we see yep. the filtered picture, we see the happy <laughs> party or the celebrations, the victories, but we don't see what it takes to get to there. Get there. Yeah, so yeah. it's well, easy to think things are easy access, right? Everything's fast now. You can order food and it comes, you know, you can, <laughs> you know, do something quick in a video game, but to show like, what is the process? What is the process of, failure and time and success look like 
I feel like that. failure became the new F word, you know, and now it's like yeah. we're afraid <laughs> to even say it. So I, as soon as I got home that day, I was making up the handbook for my parenting group and I was like, okay, we're, we're talking about resilience and we're talking about failure. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I can't be the only one that's living these experiences and, and how do we do exactly like you said, like make it from a failure to a teachable moment. Well, yeah. yeah and I think it's so important too, like you were saying, Heather, to just like be, be vulnerable too and be able mm. to just show kids that we're struggling. And um, I, I just remember there was one time that back when I was in New York, I had uh, a kid who, gosh, she was, she's probably close to two at the time. And uh, someone, I had just had an altercation, like someone just started screaming at me and I really got very upset about it and started crying. And, you know, and I was like, I'm like standing, okay. we were like outside the establishment where we were. And I was like standing in front of this stroller, just like crying. And I was like, this is a teachable moment. And I was like, <laughs> Seth is crying because he's sad and he's upset that this happened. And she just looked at me, opened her arms and went hug <laughs> and gave me a hug and then patted my back. I went, all better. <laughs> it's so funny. Parents or adults or caregivers, we have, we're kind of wired to want to jump in and stop our children's pain, like, you know, mm-hmm. and solve the problem. Yeah. And also knowing when to take a step back from that. <clears throat> so I'm actually writing yeah. a piece on effective listening now with kids mm-hmm. and how, you know, essentially we don't do a good job of it because we, jump in to solve or share or relate or try to validate when we're validating the wrong thing too quickly, but kind of the same with resilience. If we take away, if we try too often to stop our kids from feeling those deeper, harder emotions or failure, like, you know, you're saying that, you know, became the new, the new F word that if they don't get a chance to go through that and try to problem solve themselves either emotionally or intellectually or physically, they can't develop resilience because we're, we're learning instead of them, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think when we're talking about children with illness and disabilities, it's even, it's so pronounced because this is the suffering is right up in front of that parent's face. Yeah. Right? And they're, they're having to watch their child suffer. And what do you do in that moment? Because you have all your emotions of, seeing this thing that you couldn't care if you care most about in the whole world and they're suffering right and how do you how do you sit with that well I think you sit that's how you do it is you sit with it right and and you be there instead of trying to avoid it or get away from it or or say it's all going to be better or placate as much as you can you know right yeah absolutely like leaning into the negative the difficult the Yeah, I had a friend and writer and activist with metastatic breast cancer, and Mm -hmm. she had written this beautiful piece um, about how she went kind of from this, you know, mom who was just so involved in everything her children did into when she got her diagnosis and how they started to do things for themselves, you know, and Mm -hmm. how she had to kind of both watch that and encourage it and how they changed and how she changed before it, they became resilient. Rebecca Timlin Scalera was her name. Mm -hmm. And it was just such a, it was an amazing piece. And 
just, you know, they did develop resilience from that, but, you know, and both kind of out of necessity, when you have a chronic illness, whether terminal or not, that when you can do less for your kids, they need to do more. And that does develop a certain resilience and independence too, you know, as long as you give them the tools to process it and feel and what to do with those emotions, right? So it's not just like, oh, now you have to make breakfast, you know, now you're resilient. (laughs) But it's kind of like, you know, what do you kind of do through those things? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have to say, honestly, like growing up with a sibling who was really sick, and then eventually died, it really did build a certain resilience in myself in terms of those heavier things that can happen in life. And it was, yeah. it was interesting with my husband. My, my husband has um, generalized anxiety, and a lot of it's related to death and illness, actually. Um, but he hasn't had much experience with loss. And uh, we've been together for quite a long time. And when we first met, I was like, yeah, I, I study in palliative care. It's my interest. And he was like, what? And, then, <laughs> and, um, and it was really interesting because having had the experience of such a, a huge loss at a young age, I was only 11, and also it was at a time in my development where I had a greater understanding about the permanency of death, which is common at that age. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's like you have that experience, and then it's like, well, pfft. <laughs> not everything's a piece of cake, but it's like the worst has happened, right? And that's, yeah. and that's termed sometimes post-traumatic growth of like, okay, well, I've faced that now. And it's just really interesting to have conversations with him about death and illness because he has so much more fear because it's an unknown entity to him uh-huh. where it's not for me, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um. Okay, so uh, closing things up a little bit, I'm curious if either of you have any any resources as far as it could be for children, adults, whether it's like meet different you know books or shows or uh, with good representation or uh, or websites for adults, things like that that are good resources about this topic. I don't know anything. Right. Uh, I don't have any specific titles, but usually I will refer parents to. Um, uh, St. Justin Editions, uh, the hospital, mm-hmm. they have, they publish books, uh, and, uh, oh, and, really? and, and yeah, they do and leaflets and all sorts of things, um, that you can buy online and they have them on all sorts of, um, of subjects, uh, you know, uh, sleeping disorders, ADHD, uh, behavior problems, anxiety, child development, aggressivity. So this so is they more have, like for the adults about. Yeah. Oh, and I so see it's more for the adults, but they do have, I think, some uh, works for children. children. Yes, I see there's yeah. one. So, so they have a lot of very interesting stuff oh, cool. and some of them for specific illnesses. Um, so that's pretty great. Oh, there's also one for grandparents. That's so cute. Oh, wow. <laughs> They're awesome. Thank you for that. My pleasure. I think when it comes to um, children's book, Google's great for finding because all kids are different. Like you don't know exactly what's going to jive with your child. You know? Yeah, totally. So um, looking up stuff, and I find that there's so many good book lists right now for children's books just on mm-hmm. Google. I keep um, a Facebook page for the Parenting with Confidence Montreal group, and I do try to post mm. those on them when I find them. 
Um, but I prefer when I'm recommending things, resources for parents, I prefer to give lots of options and have like go shop for yourself, uh, kind yeah, of thing. Absolutely. That's my approach. Like, um, rather than giving specific titles, I say that. And at the same time, I wrote down every book that you mentioned, uh, today, in <laughs> Um, but that would be that would be my my two cents is just to go ahead and shop around and see what what works. And I liked what you said earlier too about not being afraid to read books about illness and disability with kids that don't have that because there's yeah learning right yeah yeah I, I think it's yeah I think it's just really important to expose kids to all kinds of people and and different things and ideas um mm-hmm. for for sure. Huh. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I don't know that I have any specific resources uh, that's okay troll disability <laughs> twitter um <laughs> disability twitter is amazing um it's not a specific site it's just you know, people say like everyone <laughs> i feel like there's always great resources i feel like there's so many new interesting things being written by <laughs> parents with disabilities um yeah I feel like that's a lot of what's happening is people like the, a lot of the books that I found were like kickstarted books. People were just like, I don't like the things that exist now. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna make it. <laughs> um, but the, yeah, the two that I mentioned were mommy has to stay in bed, which is like, okay. Um, and uh, like had some good parts in it, but it wasn't like my favorite book. Um, and then the other one was why does mommy hurt? Which I, I do really like. Um, other than the fact that why does it always have to be a mommy? <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's hard because I think that kids, it's like easier for kids to relate if there's a narrative in a book. Um, totally agree. But, but at the same time, how do we, you know, I think there are ways to make narrow, like you could have made a book that was about a bunch of different families or something, you know, something where like we showed different, um, different family uh, makeups because I, you know, I think that it's hard. Like I, I literally couldn't even find a book about a dad with a disability <laughs> or, oh, you know, a, cro- a chronic illness. Rather. Um, and I guess it, also the books about adults with chronic illness are kind of uh, few and far between, mm-hmm. but everything was a woman or a mom. And I was like, wow, are these the only people that are chronic? That doesn't seem factual. Or is it the that matters or, you know, is the father already yeah. left present? So it, hmm. Yeah, so I thought that was kind of interesting, but um, but those are those are good ones. And then I have I have a lot of you know if anybody needs recommendations for like specific, I have a lot of other uh, like there's a really good one for depression and ADHD and anxiety and things like that that don't necessarily fall into chronic illness, but um, yeah, and very you know it's sort of. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, and keeping in mind that they're conversation starters, right? Like the book itself yeah. doesn't need to be exactly bang on, right? I'm just thinking about the mummy. Does mummy? Oh, t- oh, totally. And you can be like, oh, the way that the mommy feels—that's how I feel, or whatever. Yeah. Um, but also, like, ha- coming from being in a marginalized community, it's just so annoying to have to insert myself into every book. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is it is hard. Or even like, you know, I have a friend who is looking for construction books for her daughter, and it's like every mm-hmm. single one is so gendered, or you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it can be really hard. Um, but but also, obviously, yeah. kids have, have the kind of like those, the different communities that are represented. In yeah. other communities, like it's everything. It's so specific. It's like, oh, you can be gender non-binary, but only if it's in a book about gender non-binary, not <laughs> gender yeah. non-binary and in a book about illness. And 
So okay, you can't have two. It's not possible. Intersectionality doesn't exist. Um, but there, there's a book that I, I mention all the time just because of this one little detail about it, but it's called Bell's Knock Knock Birthday. It's uh, from Flamingo Rampant, which is a really awesome publisher that does a lot of queer, uh, queer stuff. Um, with a lot with own voices, authors and things like that. But there's it's just about a little kid who is never gendered throughout the book. And it's about their birthday party. Uh, it's like a counting book, like, oh, this person brought five of this and whatever. Um, but there's a person in the book who just has a hearing aid. And I'm like, yeah, some people just have hearing aids. Yeah. <laughs> like, I've, I've never seen that before in a book that wasn't about a main character with the hearing yeah. or a cochlear implant. It's just like, yeah, like a guest at a party could just be someone with a hearing aid that happens. Um, and so uh, I think more inclusion like that, which obviously is harder to do with things that are invisible. Uh, but more inclusion definitely is, is something that we need and is important. Um, so my last thing is just, um, do you have any personal stuff that you want to plug, um, whether it's stuff that you're working on or where people can find you on social media, if you want them to do that, that that kind of stuff. (laughs) I have a little one, just a tiny one. Um, (laughs) I, like I I mentioned before, I do keep, um, resources and cool books. I find, I do post them to my Facebook page, which is parenting with confidence, Montreal. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's, I have bursts of activity depending on how my week's going and how much time I have. <laughs> um, and also I do have workshops going on right now for parenting with confidence. You can find them on my website. Then next we're doing school parents of school age kids right now. And then we'll do parents of toddlers in French in March. And then the t- preteens and teen groups. So parents of teenagers and preteens will be in April. And what is your website? It's my name, moirastevenson.com. Okay, perfect. Yeah. That's it. That's all I have to plug. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> um, do I have anything to plug? Uh, well, you can find me on social media, on Twitter, at Heather Osterman. I usually post my writing. I write a lot. I write on parenting and LGBTQ issues, and I write often on parenting and chronic illness as well. So if you search for me you can kind of find me there i don't have a personal website and it's the stage of being developed Um, and uh i mean aside from the general work that you do do you have any other projects or things to plug that you things that you work on or do so um yeah uh you asked me to plug this one in i (laughs) recently um i wrote a play it's called uh, baby doctor Mm. um yeah. And, um, you know, I finished writing and now I'm just doing, um, uh, realism consultancy, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, for the actors and Aurelie is, um, putting the play together for the fringe festival this June. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. What is it? Can you talk, talk a little bit about what it's about? Absolutely. So, uh, baby doctor is a play about, um, medical school, mm-hmm. uh, specifically a clerkship. So the two years that the, the last two years of the doctorate, mm-hmm. uh, where you're doing uh, constant rotations in hospitals and clinics um, to kind of prepare you for residency. It's a really tough part mm-hmm. um, of uh, medical school. And uh, I had a lot of stories to tell about that kind of, I need to get off my chest. Yeah. It, 
you know, it wasn't all bad, but it wasn't all good. <laughs> yeah. And so did my uh, classmates have a lot to say about it. So it's all true stories mm. uh, put together in one play. So, yeah, that's pretty much it. That it's interesting. Uh, definitely keep me posted on that for yeah, sure. It's kind of a roller coaster of emotions. Yeah, as I'm sure that experience was. <laughs> it was, yes. <laughs> All right. Thank you guys so much for joining me. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And remember, stay rad. there campers. My name is Emmett and I'm the host of Gaze in the Woods, a podcast that explores rural LGBTQIA2 plus experiences from radical fairies and lesbian farmers to backwoods slam poets and community organizers organizing communities the community didn't know where they were all along. Can you have a pride parade when you're the only gay in the village? What is camp when you live in a trailer? And if a genderqueer bear shares their pronouns in the forest and nobody gets it, is anything real? I don't know, but let's find out together on Gaze in the Woods, an Upford Network podcast. Hey, I'm Aaron Lakoff, host of Changing on the Fly, a brand new podcast on the Upford Network. Changing on the Fly is a podcast that dives deep into the intersections between hockey and social justice. We take on issues of sexism, racism, and homophobia on the ice. You'll hear from athletes, activists, fans, scholars, and even musicians who love hockey but want to keep the jerks out of the game. Think Colin Kaepernick or Serena Williams, but with skates and less teeth. It's your perfect antidote to Don Cherry and Coach's Corner. Hey Don, what do you think of changing on the fly? Not the left-wing pinkle media bleeding hearts, guys. What are you, nuts? Anyways... You can find Changing on the Fly wherever you get your podcasts or visit us online at changingonthefly.podcast.wordpress.com.